0: Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. It is just a real delight to be with you this morning. And I just really appreciate the uh, atmosphere of the Lord's presence in our midst and the sense of joy and and celebration. Uh, When I first started out in in local church pastoral ministry uh, back in the early 1980s, there was this song we used to sing. It was a song uh, that went like this, We have come into his house, gathered in his name to worship him. You know, I kind of liked the song, at least the first verse, but the second verse always disturbed me the verse that says, so forget about yourself and concentrate on him and worship him. Uh, is that even possible? <laughs> and is that what God wants when we gather together for this amazing experience of corporate worship? Is he simply providing for us an experience um, in this experience uh, this morning, is he is he wanting to give us an hour's reprieve from reality, from our problems, to escape everything that's going on uh, out there and honestly in here as well? Does he want us to check our problems at the door and and then pick them up again on our way out. So forget about yourself and concentrate on him. I think I get some of that sentiment. I I, I could venture a guess at what the songwriter is trying to convey in that message. But through the years since that song was written, and uh, I've come to understand that there's something powerful about this phenomenon of corporate worship. Think of it. This is a place where almighty God, think of it, the creator and sustainer of the universe, he comes to, to encounter us right where we are, with all of our problems and our fears and our frustrations and our doubts and our misgivings. And thankfully, God never tries to minimize or trivialize the challenges that we face as human beings. In fact, because his son Jesus came to earth to become one of us, the writer to the hebrews says that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted and tried in every way just as we are yet he was without sin and because of that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need oh god doesn't want us to make our problems shrink before him He says to cast every care every anxiety on him because he cares for us and for some of us this morning those cares may be looming pretty large might be a physical condition or a sickness a struggle in a relationship a problem at work maybe an overwhelming sense of failure a financial crisis I don't know what it is might be a spiritual battle in which you just haven't been able to find victory over temptation might be an addictive habit I don't know but whatever it might be that challenge might be looming pretty large for you and I hope you see in just a moment that God's word does not suggest that we somehow make our problems smaller but God's word this morning does implore that in our hearts and in our minds, we need to make God bigger. We need to magnify the Lord. I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey through Isaiah chapter 40 this morning, but to help set that up, let me just read one verse from Psalm 34, verse 3, where David, the psalm writer, says, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Magnify the Lord with me. That brings us to Isaiah 40. You know, this book of Isaiah is a tremendous book. It has 66 chapters in it, and there's really kind of a marked division between the first 39 chapters and then the last 27 chapters. And those last 27 chapters begin with chapter 40. And they comprise what some have described as a messianic poem. In other words, it's a poem about the coming Messiah, Jesus. And the language, it just flows. It soars with praises and, that are eloquent and that are uplifting, and, and, and they're filled with hope and they're filled with promise, but they're also punctuated with warnings about God's judgment and his wrath. And this 27-chapter poem is divided into three equal sections, nine chapters each. And the end of each group of those nine chapters, it's marked off with uh, the same verse, the same and solemn, sobering refrain. At the end of the first nine chapters in Isaiah 48, 22, we have this, this uh Verse, there is no peace, says the Lord for the wicked. Then at the end of the second grouping of nine chapters in Isaiah 57, 21, it says, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You've heard the phrase, haven't you? There's no rest for the wicked. We kind of say it as a joke. It isn't a joke, it's the truth. (laughs) There is no rest for the wicked. There's no peace for the wicked. But that's not the main message. Of this poem, in fact, the main message is what's on the other side of that. The heart of the poem is found in the middle chapter of the middle section, that great chapter 53, where Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. There's no peace for the wicked but there is peace for the forgiven. Well, this great messianic poem begins with chapter 40, and the whole thrust of the chapter is really to magnify the Lord, to elevate God in our hearts and in our minds, to, give, to gain a proper perspective of who he really is. Not, not to shrink our problems, but to magnify God. And in doing so, to recognize that he's there with, for us with all of his resources, with the great reservoirs of grace and, and love and comfort. The chapter starts with a word, and then the word is repeated. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I I was intrigued by that word double, that she has received from the lord's hand double for all her sins and so i looked it up in the hebrew and the hebrew word for double is kipliam do you know what the hebrew word kipliam means the hebrew word for double means you might want to write this down twice as much <laughs> I'm so glad you laughed. <laughs> I am no Hebrew scholar. And it doesn't take one to, to, to figure out that double means twice as much. Now, now, the reason I raise that point is this, that when we go to God and we repent of our sinful ways, he, he doesn't just bring us back up to ground level. He doesn't just restore some sense of equilibrium our lives he he raises us to a new level of living and we find that even even where sin has abounded grace has abounded all the more I I need to hear those series on original grace And, and we can proclaim like the apostle Paul that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And when the prophet Isaiah is talking about this payment for sins, he's he's really foreshadowing, he's giving us a hint of what's to come in Isaiah chapter 53 in that verse that I already read to you, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds were healed. In Isaiah 40, there are some of these comparisons that God gives us that uh, help us to see how big he really is. First of all, he compares himself to us, you can imagine. He compares his greatness to the greatness of humans. In verses 6 and 7, he says, "'All men are like grass, "'and their glory is like the flowers of the field.'" The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. I've been so glad to see the rain these last few days. Everything in Victoria is turning back to a bright and luscious green. But you and I know that the lawns in Victoria are not always green, they were so brown this summer. The glory of grass is temporary. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Every summer, I, I like to hang up these uh, hanging baskets on our back deck, and they get a lot of love through the summer months. They're beautiful, and the fragrance and the splashes of color they bring to our back deck is incredible, but, but you know what I did about a month ago? I, I took the plants, I tore them out of the baskets, and I put them in the big green bin The garden waste recycling bin and the following Thursday morning at seven o'clock in the morning this big truck came by with this long mechanical arm and it reached out and it grabbed that green bin and then it just flipped it up and mixed all of those flowers in with the rotting fish and carrots and leftover pizza crusts and you know those slimy cucumbers that have been in the refrigerator too long. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. Compared to the strength and power of God, what's a blade of grass? Compared to the greatness and power of God, it says that we're like grass. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says that the, the weakness of God is stronger than all of the strength of mankind put together. Now, when God says that we're like grass, do you, you think he's trying to put us down? No, absolutely not. Is he saying that we're insignificant to him? Absolutely not. He tells us that not even one sparrow is forgotten by God. And then he says, You are so much more important than a little sparrow. So much, he says, I even know how many hairs are on your head. It's easier for some of us for him to count than <laughs> others. But. but we're important to God. We count, we matter. We're significant but compared to God we're grass I, I think in our minds we have a kind of a tendency to to make God just a little bit bigger than us we never make God equal to us we know that that would be wrong but we make him you know he's someone like us but he has a superpower <laughs> or a turbo boost or something like that and and I think maybe because of that, that's why our problems look so hopeless to us sometimes. We, we don't seem to have any difficulty in seeing how, how large our problems loom, but we wonder, can God deal with that? With this large, with this looming problem? Well, let me give you some advice from God's word that I found so helpful when the problems of life have seemed too big to handle. It's this, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The second comparison that God makes, he compares himself to the nations. He says in verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Verse 17 says before him all the nations... Are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Vancouver Island. It's a pretty big place, isn't it? You know, sometimes people on the mainland they say silly things like, "Oh, you live on an island. You must be claustrophobic." I live on. I've lived on islands pretty much all my life. I've lived on small islands and large islands. I was born in Japan. I grew up there. I lived on Honshu and Okinawa and Hokkaido. Now, I'm claustrophobic, but it's not because I've spent my life on islands. Some of these islands are huge, and Vancouver Island is a big place, isn't it? We go days, sometimes weeks, without ever seeing the ocean. It's a big place. And then you you look at the map where we're positioned, and you see that across the pond there's this huge expanse of land called the continent of north america and it's huge and you take the entire continent and then you start throwing in the other islands of the sea and the other continents and then you put all the nations together and what does god say about them he says compared to me they're like a drop in the bucket they're like specks of dust on the scale I'm going to ask you a personal question this morning. It might might be a little bit too personal. But before you weigh yourself on the bathroom scale in the morning, do, do you take a spray bottle of Windex and some paper towel and you wipe the dust off the scale so that you won't have to add that weight to the number that appears on the scale? Says the nations are like specks of dust on the scale compared to God. And then in verse 12, as we make this comparison, we go to throw in all of the great rivers of the world and, and the lakes and even the oceans. Verse 12 says, Who has measured the, the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of, or the listen to this, or the breadth of his hand has marked off the heavens. The extent of the whole world to God compared to God. The nations, the waters, the heavens. (laughs) says he can measure them all with one hand tied behind his back. How big is your God? Is he big enough to deal with that pressure you're facing in your life? the relationship struggle, the financial battle, the sickness you've discovered? Is God big enough to show you his will for your future, to guide you, to protect you, to care for you? Let me give you some advice from God's word. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He compares himself to us. He compares himself to the nations, to the world. And then in verse 26, he gives us another comparison. He compares his greatness to the universe. In verse 25, he says, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes to the heavens who created all these. He brings out the starry host one by one and he calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. I think the James Webb telescope is one of the greatest gifts we've had in the last several years. To be able to see some of those images that are coming out of the universe. Astrophysicists have concluded that in their research that there are billions of stars in every galaxy, and not only are there galaxies and clusters of galaxies, but there are also clusters of clusters of galaxies, and maybe even clusters of clusters of clusters of galaxies called supergalaxies. And God says, do you want to know how big I am? Take the whole universe. Not only do I know every star by name, but I can measure the galaxies, like I said, with one hand tied behind his back. Are you getting a picture of how, how big our God is? The strength, the might, the greatness of God. And so it really begs the question, well, what should be our response to all of this? And the response is this, you can put your trust in him. We sang it earlier, you can lean on him. Whatever your circumstance, whatever your history, whatever whatever you're facing in your life right now, he has the strength and the power to renew you. This is a message of hope. You can place your hope in the Lord and he will renew your strength. The final words of Isaiah 40 tell us that. Verse 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I mentioned at the beginning that um, some look at this chapter 40 as the beginning of a messianic poem, a chapter long, a 27-chapter-long poem about the coming Messiah, Jesus. And in analyzing this poem, some literary critics have suggested that Isaiah at the begin, in this verse the 31st verse of Isaiah that that he the prophet destroyed the poetic structure you see Isaiah talks first about flying and then about running and then about walking and the literary critics would say it should be the other way around you know, you, you should you should walk first and then and then run and then kind of build up to flying I guess if I were writing it, that's probably how I would do it. I, I would do it probably like some of the hucksters on the television shopping net, networks that, you know, if you, you know, the ones that say, but but, wait, there's more. <laughs> you know, if you wait on, on the Lord, if you put your hope in the Lord, you'll be able to walk and not faint But wait, there's more. If you wait for the Lord, if you put your hope in Him, you'll not only be able to walk and not faint, you'll be able to run and not grow weary. But wait, there's more. If you wait for the Lord, if you put your hope in the Lord, not only will you be able to walk and not faint, not only will you be able to run and not grow weary, if you call in the next 15 minutes, we'll throw in mounting up with wings like eagles and then the crowd goes wild. <laughs> that's that's how I would do it. It's not how Isaiah does it. Do you think Isaiah knew what he was doing when he structured the poem in this way? Let me ask you a question. When do you most need the renewal of your strength? I've watched eagles fly. Most of the time, it seems to me that it requires little or no effort. They just put their wings out and the wind carries them. Those who wait for the Lord, who put their hope in the Lord, will renew their strength. And sometimes... Because of God's involvement and intervention, because of the wind of the Spirit, they will mount up with wings as eagles. They will be carried above their circumstances. They'll be able to dance among the clouds. Sometimes, right? Other times, uh, those who wait for the Lord, there will be this interaction with God and and the renewing of strength in which they will run and not grow weary, it requires some effort. But there are times, I tell you, when you're out there running and you feel like you're at the end of your strength and you kind of hit a wall, and then miraculously, somehow, there's a breakthrough. You, you, you catch a second wind, and, and then it feels like you could keep running for a long time. When do you most need the renewal of your strength? when you're flying, when you're running. How about, how about those times when you're walking? You know, you're just trying to take the next step. You're trying to put one foot in front of the other, and you're just trying to make it through the day to just walk and not faint. In these past few years since I retired from local church pastoral ministry, uh, I've had some time to reflect on my life in ministry. It's not over, by the way. I'm serving as a chaplain now at a senior's residence, having the time of my life. Even got my bus license. I tell people I take them to the uh, Beacon Drive-In for ice cream cones. And it's like being a youth pastor of average... <laughs> a- ...average age of my youth group is 87... But I, I, I've had some time to reflect on, on ministry and life. And there was, there's nothing better than local church pastoral ministry. I know your pastor, Scott, he has that call on his life, that special call and special privilege. And as was mentioned, I had the privilege of pastoring the same church family for 29 years Serving God is an adventure. And I think of the people that I've met and the places I've gone and the opportunities to experience the presence of God at work in the lives of people. It's been an incredible, incredible life. It's not over yet. I I can tell you about times when the Spirit of God was blowing on us And ministry was effortless. All we had to do was spread out our wings, it seemed like, and catch the wind of the Spirit, mounting up with wings as eagles. But you and I know that it wasn't always like that. (laughs) I remember a congregational meeting one time when our fellowship hall was packed with people. People. And when a big crowd comes out to a congregational meeting, it's usually not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this particularly contentious congregational meeting where at the end of it, a dear friend of mine, Merv Black, he probably thought he was giving me a softball question. He said, so, so pastor, what's your vision for the future? And I can't remember exactly what I said. It was probably some lofty platitude about how God was going to use us to transform Vancouver Island for Christ. When I was asked about what my vision was for the future, I don't remember at all what I said. But I I could sure remember what I was thinking. My vision, my vision is to survive My vision is to survive tonight. (laughs) Honestly. You know, it's painful to kind of recognize that I hadn't been the perfect pastor. I hadn't lived up to everybody's expectations. As unrealistic as they might have been, I might have added. (laughs) But in moments of conflict and miscommunication and misunderstanding, it didn't matter how hard I would flap my wings. I knew I wasn't going to fly. And no matter how much I warmed up and stretched and psyched myself up, I knew I wasn't going to run. Oh, to be sure, I've had times, as I mentioned, in pastoral ministry where I mounted up with wings as eagles, and I've had some times when it seemed like I could run with abandonment and never get tired. But there have also been some times when it's just been about all I could do to walk. To put one foot in front of the other and just try to make it through the day. I've experienced that in ministry. I've experienced that in my personal life, in my family life, as we face challenges and illnesses and deaths. You've had those moments. I've had those moments. We've all had those moments. But you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that God is true to his word. That when we put our hope in him, he renews our strength. And sometimes, yes, we fly like eagles. And sometimes we run with abandonment. And even in those moments when we are putting one foot in front of the other, we know that the almighty God who put all of the forces of creation into motion the one who can measure the universe in the span of his hand will give us the strength to make it through the day. So let me ask you the question that the prophet asks in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together.